0: Thank you, Bonnie, Linda, and Harriet. Wonderful as always. I'm going to be watching my right side today. (laughs) Um, Alrighty, if you have your Bibles, please open them up to Genesis chapter 43. Um, You know, a few weeks ago I said that I was going to might be breaking up the chapters, and I'm finding that it's really difficult for me to do that because the way that Joseph's story is, um, it's just so each chapter is so particular, um, and it's just one big story that it's really hard to break up a story when when the author wants us to know the whole story as it is given to us. Um, so we're going to go through the whole chapter 43 and see what we can find. Um, also, along with that, we're, I mean, if you notice, we're in Genesis chapter 43. That means that we're getting close to the end of Genesis, which means that we have to decide on a new book to go through. Um, so if you've got any ideas I am accepting New Testament books and maybe a minor prophet. And the reason why I say that is because there's a lot more Old Testament books than New Testament. Um, So if we're really going to do back and forth, you'll run out of New Testament books faster than you will Old Testament. Um, Not that I think that I would be able to preach all of that because that would take forever. And by forever, I mean it won't mean forever. But anyway. Let's go ahead and continue forward. Um, so Genesis chapter 43. Uh, basically what we learned last time from Genesis 42 is that Joseph's brothers finally go down to Egypt in order to get some food because of the major famine that's happening all around the known world at the time. Um, and of course, they meet Joseph for the first time after 20 years, at least, of not having seen him and have sold him into slavery. And naturally, they don't, they don't think he even is alive anymore. They think he's probably passed away since then. But as it is, he's now the Grand Vizier over all of Egypt, and he's the one who decides who gets the food. Um, and so with a back and forth, he decides, okay, I'm going to give you food, and you can go back to your home, but you need to bring back your brother Benjamin before I would give you anything else. Um, and so he also kept Simeon behind. So when they got back, Reuben was like, okay, father, Jacob, Israel, I, we need to go back. You can have my two sons, um, but we need to bring Benjamin with us. And Jacob was like, no. Now, granted, I think Reuben was the wrong choice to go to his father. Um, if you know his history, he did a mistake with his father's wife. Um, so Reuben was probably not the good choice. As it is, though, we're going to find out who does make a pretty good argument to go. So now we are in chapter 43. So we're going to do verses 1 through 10. Now the famine was severe in the land. And when they had eaten the grain that they had brought from Egypt, their father said to them, Go again, buy us a little food. But Judah... They replied, the man questioned us carefully about ourselves and our kindred saying, is your father still alive? Do you have another brother? What we told him was an answer to those questions. Could we in any way know that he would say, bring your brother down? And Judah with, said to Israel, his father, send the boy with me and we will rise and go and that we may live and not die, both we and you and also our little ones, I will I will be a pledge of his safety. From my hand, you shall require him. If I do not bring him back to you and set him before you, then let me bear the blame forever. If we had not delayed, we would now have returned twice. All right, so chapter 43 begins the same way that chapter 42 did, in that we are reminded of the famine in the land. Indeed, the first two verses are a reflection of everything that has come thus far in the story. We learn that not only is there a famine, but also that they had eaten what they had already gotten from Egypt, thus informing us of the first journey. It is at this point Jacob tells them to go again and buy some more food. Previously, it was Reuben, as I mentioned earlier, who had spoken up when they had returned. Um, He requested to take Benjamin to Egypt in order to bring back Simeon and prove that they were not spies. Jacob, however, refused to listen to his oldest son. Now it is Judah who takes the lead. Um, First, he reminds his father of what the man warned. If they wanted to return for food, they must bring Benjamin. As such, Judah states that if Jacob truly wants them to go back to Egypt, then Benjamin must also go. Otherwise, the sons will not go down because it will be futile. And they'll probably be be imprisoned, all of them. Jacob, however, takes it quite personally. Um, Indeed, the way he takes it makes it appear as though the brothers willingly gave the information about having another brother. We find them all stating that it wasn't their intentions, but instead they were simply answering the man's questions. And besides, how could they possibly have known that he would say, hey, you need to bring your brother back here? Um, The whole argument is actually quite persuasive. At this, Judah again takes the lead. He asks that Jacob entrust Benjamin to him. His argument is simple. Let him go with us so that we may live and not die. If they continue as they are, they will perish. Not only would Jacob perish, but so would his children and his grandchildren. After the persuasive argument, he adds to it by pledging that he will keep Benjamin safe. He is willing to take the blame for the loss of Benjamin forever. Um, His final argument is practical. They could have been there and back multiple times if they had not tarried. So the question is, what will Jacob do? We then find out. Then their father, Israel, said to them, If it must be so, then do this. Take some of the choice fruits of the land in your bags and carry a present down to the man, a little balm and a little honey, gum, myrrh, pistachio nuts, and almonds. Take double the money with you. Carry back with you the money that was returned in the mouth of your sacks. Perhaps it was an oversight. Take also your brother and arise, go again to the man. May God Almighty grant you mercy before the man, and may he send back your other brother and Benjamin. And as for me, if I am bereaved of my children, I am bereaved. So we notice then the narrator uh, narrator uses Israel instead of Jacob uh, with verses 11 through 14. Israel relents to his sons. Judah has made a persuasive argument. Um, But Jacob makes a number of recommendations. First, to bring choice fruits from Canaan as the present to the man, balm, honey, gum, myrrh, pistachios, and almonds. Now, it's interesting, uh, such of what was stated of these lists of uh, food, the Ephraimites actually brought with them to Egypt when they bought Joseph. So there's a little bit of a connection there. Along with this, they are to take double the money, Now, if we remember, the money from the first trip, in case there was a mistake because they had received all that money back and they weren't sure why. They thought, oh, no, what's happening? Um, Thus, they're going to bring that money as well as the money for the second trip. That way, they will not be culpable and the man cannot accuse them of theft. Finally, as a way of emphasis, perhaps, or a way of holding on just in case he allows Benjamin to go, Um, really all the rest is unnecessary. And we notice how he is very willing to part with these things. Benjamin, however, he's still very reluctant as he just briefly says, take him. Israel then blesses them through a prayer that God Almighty would grant mercy before the man and that they would receive back their other brother. And notice how he does not say Simeon's name, um, but he does say Benjamin's name. It's very interesting that family dynamic again. He concludes with a, sh- with a shrug almost that if in the end he is bereaved because he has lost all of his children, then so be it. And in the end, he is entrusting it all into God's hands now. There's nothing more he can do or they can do. So now we come to the next few verses. Uh, so the men took this present and they took double the money with them and Benjamin. They arose and went down to Egypt and stood before Joseph. When Joseph saw Benjamin with them, he said to the steward of the house, Bring the men into the house and slaughter an animal and make ready, for the men are to dine with me at noon. The man did as Joseph told him and brought the men to Joseph's house. And the men were afraid because they were brought to Joseph's house. And they said, It is because of the money which was replaced in our sacks the first time that we are brought in so that he may assault us and fall upon us to make us servants and seize our donkeys. I just love that line. I'm sorry, I do. The return trip to Egypt is but briefly mentioned in verse 15. We learn that they take everything recommended to them by Jacob, including Benjamin, of course. Um, Immediately in the story, anyway, they are brought before Joseph. It's a very quick, quick trip. Being brought before Joseph, he recognizes them and sees Benjamin for the first time. He then tells the steward to bring the men into his house and then to slaughter an animal because the brothers were going to dine with him for lunch, basically. The steward was ever faithful and does all that Joseph asks of him. But as it is, the brothers are fearful. They knew this was not proper protocol since they had previously met Joseph in another place. As such, to be brought to his personal house, his personal abode, it was unsettling to them. They begin to think of all the possible reasons for being brought to Joseph's house. The most natural reason is the money which they found in their packs. Being fearful, they then assume the absolute worst, um, which is that Joseph is now going to have his revenge. Um, He will attack them, make them slaves, and then take all their belongings just for fun, uh, which included donkeys and everything on the donkeys. Interestingly enough, these are the very things that they did to Joseph. Um... And I think that that that's purposefully put in there, that they're very worried about things that they had done in the past. So then we come to verses 19 through 25. So they went up to the steward of Joseph's house and spoke with him at the door of the house. And they said, oh, my Lord, we came down the first time to buy food. And when we came to the lodging place, we opened our sacks and there was each man's money in the mouth of the sack, our money in full weight. So we have brought it again with us, and we have brought our other money down with us to buy food. We do not know who put the money in our sacks. He replied, Peace to you. Do not be afraid. Your God and the God of your father has put treasure in your sacks for you. I received your money. Then he brought Simeon out to them. And when the man had brought the men into Joseph's house and given them water, and they had washed their feet, and when he had given their donkeys fodder, they prepared the present for Joseph's coming out at noon, for they heard that he should eat bread there. So, as worried as they were, they decided to go directly to the steward and speak with him about what had occurred. They told him about how they had gone to the lodging and found the money from the previous trip. As such, they had brought extra money this time in order to pay for what they had received the last time, as well as to get food this time. The steward's reply is very interesting. Um, he can probably tell that the way they're rambling on, it seems, that they are a bit overwhelmed. He calms them, though, by saying simply, peace. He also assures them that he had, in fact, received the money from the previous trip, and that it was God who had placed the treasure into their sacks. It was not a mistake, basically. They, they don't have anything to worry about when it comes to the money. Then he brings Simeon out to them, and as was customary during the time, the host would provide water for washing. They had uh, washed their feet as well as had their donkeys cared for. Now, all that was left was the present. We notice that they purposefully prepared the present for Joseph. They were told that he would be eating at the house, and so they wanted to make sure everything was set just right. Whether or not this would work, who knows. Uh, but it is a good attempt, and something they likely learned from their father before he encountered Esau. Because if you remember, when he first encountered Esau, he sent ahead all these presents. Make sure that they know, this belongs to my brother Esau. Um, so they, they learned from their father how to um, give presents, I guess. So now we come to the next few verses. When Joseph came home, they brought into the house to him the present that they had with them and bowed down to him to the ground. And he inquired about their welfare and said, Is your father well? The old man of whom you spoke, is he still alive? They said, Your servant, our father, is well. He is still alive. And they bowed their heads and prostrated themselves. And he lifted up his eyes and saw his brother Benjamin, his mother's son, and said, Is this your youngest brother of whom you spoke to me? God be gracious to you, my son. Then Joseph hurried out, for his compassion grew warm for his brother, and he sought a place to weep. And he entered his chamber and wept there. In short order, Joseph comes home. The brothers quickly respond by showing him the gifts that they had brought, as well as showing humility by bowing before him. He asks how things are and whether Jacob was still alive and well. The response is quick, that he is alive, um, and all the while bowing before him and showing this great gesture. At this point, Jacob sees Benjamin for the first time in 20 years and immediately inquires if this is the youngest brother they had mentioned previously. Assuming it is, or perhaps receiving some acknowledgement, he immediately blesses him saying, God be gracious to you, my son. This response to Benjamin and not the rest might be part of an overarching test, which we will see shortly. Ultimately, this is too much for Joseph. His emotions are truly high at seeing his brother, and so he rushes out to cry. He he ends up going into his chambers in order to weep. We see for the second time, first when he heard that his brothers were discussing uh, what they had done to him previously, and what is causing their strife now, in their first visit he wept, and now when it comes to seeing his brother Benjamin. As such, it reminds us that the emotional appeal is not something which is bad, but it is something which is good. Now we come to the final few verses of the chapter. Then he washed his face and came out, and controlling himself, he said, serve the food. They served him by himself, and them by themselves, and Egyptians who ate with them by themselves, because the Egyptians could not eat with the Hebrews, for that is an abomination to the Egyptians. (laughs) Yeah. They were a bit racist back then. And they sat before him the firstborn according to their to his birthright and the youngest according to his to his youth and the men looked at one another in amazement portions were taken to them from Joseph's, Joseph's table but Benjamin's portion was 5 times as much as any of theirs and they drank and were merry with him All right So all this leads to Joseph eventually returning. One must wonder what the brothers thought at that point, uh, but as it is, he's able to control himself and return to them. He promptly orders food to be served. We then learn that Joseph sits by himself, the Egyptians sit by themselves, and the brothers by themselves. Um, Thus the people all sitting separately Together, The Egyptians, not eating with the Hebrews, reminds us of the common xenophobic, I would say, nature of the ancient culture. It's not necessarily racist as we understand it today, but uh, more xenophobic, I would say. What shocks the brothers, however, is that the brothers were seated according to their place in the family. How could they have known who was the oldest and who was the youngest and all that in between? The brothers have no idea how that could have been made known. Um, but do not dwell too greatly on it as food is brought from Joseph's tables to theirs, and let's be real, food. At this point, we get what scholars know is another test for the brothers, and I don't know if anyone really grasped this, but we're going to talk about it. We learn that Benjamin receives five times the amount of food as compared to the brothers. We're all to wonder, what will the brothers do since this is the case? Will they mock him for being the favorite or jeer him for not receiving as much as he had? Will they treat him differently as they once treated Joseph, who also received more? The answer is swift. They drank and were merry with him. The brothers seem to have changed over the years. And instead of being offended, they simply enjoy what has been given. All right. So the main point of this passage is to describe the decision by Jacob to allow Benjamin to travel to Egypt. As such, they will all be spared as the brothers will be able to get food while there. But first, they need to encounter Joseph. And in their encounter, Joseph finally sees Benjamin, his brother, again, blesses him, but then goes out and weeps um, by himself in his room. He comes back out, and they begin to eat, and the brothers being seated according to their age. Benjamin is given more food than the rest, and instead of being jealous, the brothers just simply enjoy the situation and the food that's brought out. Alright, so the first application comes from the time prior to the return to Egypt. If we remember, Jacob was hesitant to allow the brothers to travel with Benjamin to the land of Egypt. His reasoning was that he did not want to lose his beloved son, much as he had lost Joseph. As such, his hesitancy then led to Judah proclaiming, we could have been there and back twice by now if you would have just let us go. So this makes me think further of things that happen within our own lives. So many times we can think that we know best. Because of that, we can hesitate. Instead of trusting in God or believing that he will be with us, we try to do things our own way. Even though it can mean possible death, as it was possibly with Jacob and his family, we would just as likely take our lives and our decisions into our own hands instead of having faith in God. It is not an easy moment for Jacob to watch his sons go, especially his beloved son. Does it break his heart? Absolutely. Does he still have fear? Sure does. Does he recognize that it could lead to him being bereaved? Yes. So why would he do all this if this was the case? What could possibly cause him to allow this to go forward when there is such emotional turmoil inside of him? And the answer is that he knows God. By knowing God, it gives him the courage to do what's right, even when he is being eaten up by the emotions. It gives him the strength to persevere, even though he doesn't know the outcome. Yet Jacob trusts in the will of God for the situation. He asks for blessing, for mercy, and that they would all return home. The same is true of us. There are many times in our lives when it is necessary for us to place our faith in God and to simply trust in him. This is especially true when it comes to choices we make which are for good. The world doesn't like what's good. It is far easier to succumb to the world's view of on this life and do what the world does. But we are not called to do this. We are called to seek justice, to be obedient, faithful, in all things for the glory of God. This could lead to some consequences. There are many times when we are called bigots or we are called intolerant because we disagree with those around us. We may be persecuted. It is true. Christ said, though, that if he who does not pick up his cross and follow me, he's not worthy of me. Even if we should be in these situations, we are still called to do what we are to do according to the will of our Father, regardless of the repercussions this world may give. Because as it is, we are not in it for the good things the world offers. But we are in this for the good which comes from trusting in God and being obedient to God. Jacob was having a hard time of it because it meant possible loss. So it may be with us. Jacob was to be obedient in seeking what was good for his family by making sure his family had provisions, living instead of dying. Indeed, if the story ended with Jacob refusing to send Benjamin, it would have been the end of the story, period. God has chosen this family, and as such, this family had a responsibility to trust God. Jacob, despite his many reservations, decided to do just that. It may have been hard for him to see his son go, but in the end he recognizes it is in God's hands, and it is completely in his hands. We can learn from Jacob in this moment of his life. It is almost a reflection in a way of Jacob's grandfather and father, that is Abraham and Isaac. Just as Abraham placed his faith in God concerning Isaac when he was willing to sacrifice Isaac to God, so Jacob must in this moment trust in God for what is going to happen next. The question for us is, are we prepared? Are we prepared to possibly let go of things in order for the greater good? Are we prepared to be despised and mistreated because it is for the greater good? For the greater good is not mere peace, but bring truth into the world. And that truth is found in the scriptures, in the gospel of Jesus, the reality of our sin, our shame, our guilt, but also our redemption. So be reminded of Jacob and the potential sacrifice he makes. But like Jacob... Be willing to trust in God, even if you can't see what will happen if you do. Placing yourself in the will of God can be scary. But in the end, we know that the will of God is pleasing, it's perfect, and it is good. Place your faith in him, then, and know that the great peace that comes from above because of following after God. Now, this next thought comes with being content. Another short point that I want to hit on deals with the brother's reaction to Benjamin being given more than them. We notice that instead of being jealous of uh, Benjamin's abundance, they are merry with him. This causes us to reflect on ourselves because the truth is it's no different with our own lives. We are reminded of the passage, the rain falls on the just and the unjust. As it is, God has decided to bestow blessings on those whom he has for his purposes. Now, I don't know about you, but I'm not a millionaire. Are there Christians who are millionaires? Sure are. What should my response be? I should be content and satisfied with where God has placed me instead of being jealous of the gifts given to others. Jealousy is a dangerous thing. It's been seen as a product of sin since the fall, whether it be Cain and Abel, Jacob and Esau, Joseph and his brothers. We see where jealousy leads. It leads to destruction rather than peace. Thus, the warning is clear to us. Be like Joseph's brothers who instead of despise Benjamin for the gifts given to him, they're instead merry with him. This can be hard to do when you are in desperate need and you find the person next to you in no need at all. It can be hard when you're ill and the person next to you is perfectly healthy. It can be hard to not want to scorn those around you when they are not experiencing the same problems and facing the same sorrows and struggles. But in the end, we are all called to trust in God and his will in our lives. Indeed, Paul even calls all of this the secret to finding contentment. Consider what he says in Philippians 4. Through him who strengthens me. Now notice that last verse is quoted all the time. Um, and a lot of times it's really out of context. Contextually it is speaking of finding contentment in life, not about overcoming obstacles in the world per se. A lot of times we say I can do all things through him who strengthens me as a self motivator um, to accomplish something. Yet in context Paul is talking about having abundance as well as hunger. How does he overcome in either case, in both abundance and hunger? The answer is in Christ. It isn't just about the hard times, but even in the good times, we need to be reminded of being content, not with what we have, but in Christ. It is not the things of this world which we find our contentment. It is not in the things of this world which we find our satisfaction. No, it is in Christ alone. So even if the people to my right or to my left, they have it easier, so be it. Even if they should be more blessed, they should have better finances, better marriages. Our marriage is great. (laughs) It's a hypothetical. Um, Or children. Or jobs. Or even a better spiritual life. I will seek to find my contentment not in the blessings, but in the one who provides the blessings. For he is the prize, the goal, the very purpose, and the reason for all of it. As such... We can certainly be praying for these things, and we can seek and work to have better jobs and marriages and finances and work on raising our children. Contentment doesn't mean apathy, nor does it mean to lack desire to see better or to seek better. No, contentment means that no matter the circumstances, we do in the end trust in God. So continue to trust in him. And like the brothers who received a single portion rather than the five times amount, Find contentment in what has been provided. And as Christians, that means finding contentment in Christ, for he is our treasure, he's our hope, and he is where we find God's great love for us who dwell in him. He is, in the end, the one who has been given. He is the greatest provision that God could ever give. And so, I must have talked fast today. Sorry if I was going faster than normal. (laughs) I don't know. Anyway, um, but this leads us to the gospel. you know. And we talk about origins and we talk about our faith and how in the end, the origins of all things is God. Um, And right now we're going through total truth where we're kind of learning this (laughs) quite extensively over and over and over again is that God is the first cause. He's the first being. Prior to him, there is nothing else because he is here by necessity. He is the number one reason for all things. And it's from him that the world exists, and that's good news. That is a good thing that God does exist, because it gives us purpose to life. But not only that, but he has also created us in his image, which means that all human beings are created in the image of God and have dignity and sanctity and worth to life. And so we praise God for this. We praise God that each one of us are so individualistic and unique, but we can come together and rejoice together. These things are great news for us good news, and we should rejoice in our origins and where we come from. The problem is, though, sin and death. And the fall is evident in this chapter. It's always evident with Joseph's brothers because they always have this guilt. They constantly have the guilt of what they did to their brother in their minds. And not only that, but I mean, we've even seen a few things that they've done otherwise. Reuben in regards to Abraham's wife. Simeon in regards to what he had done to that one small city when they came into the land. And he just slaughtered all the people because of Dinah. You know, and we have also even Judah in regards to what he had done to his son's wife. And so we have all these things that happen, and we see the fall and its effects and how this. You know, you, you, you love the patriarchs, but man, their families were broken. Their families were just full of strife and misery, and they were sometimes terrible, terrible people. And why is that? And why is it today that we still have people who are terrible? How is it still today that we have families that are broken and relationships that suffer? How is it today that we still have so much sin in our world? And it's because we choose to. It's because... We love sin. It's because we prefer disobedience. We prefer to break things rather than to make them good. And so as it is, when we see the effects of the fall, we realize that we are truly all guilty before God, just as the brothers are guilty as they stand and bow and prostrate themselves before Joseph. They're very much guilty and not deserving of any good thing. So the question is, how... Do we receive goodness? How do we receive this alleviation of guilt for our sins? And the answer is through Jesus Christ. And slowly, the redemption process is being seen in the brothers. Chapter by chapter. Verse by verse, we're seeing how Joseph's brothers are slowly on their way to finding redemption for something that they had done so long ago. Um... And, you know, we, we read about the Joseph story, and it is a really wonderful story about Joseph. But a lot of times we forget that we're the brothers <laughs> in the story. We're the brothers. And as time goes on, we're going to see how even they are redeemed. And that means that if they can be redeemed, we can be redeemed. And we are through Jesus. We are through the work of God, through his son, Jesus Christ. And that should cause us to rejoice. And it should cause us to want to go out into the world and just shine the light of Jesus on everyone. Because if we can be saved from our guilt, anyone can. And so where does it lead for the brothers? Well, we'll see. I don't want to give it away. I gave a little bit of it away. (laughs) But I'm not going to give it all away. For us, though, we can talk about that. You know, for us, it leads to glory. And, you know, I always... Sorry, I don't always, but every once in a while I'll say, like, you know, we, see, we experience the glory here and now, and it's really wonderful. It is, it, it, it's just overwhelming sometimes. Maybe Mike has experienced it out in the forest sometimes when he sees the wonderful nature that God has created. And he just – does it ever overwhelm you sometimes when you think about how great God is? Maybe not. <laughs> not those, he's too busy marking trees. <laughs> he's working. He can't focus on – now. Um But no, like, there are times, maybe it's for you, though, when you've gone outside and you've looked up in the sky and it's just overwhelming with the glory of God and you just think, wow, God is so great. And you have this feeling inside of your chest and this feeling all around you that kind of envelops you. You know, and you kind of want it to keep you, but it does tend to go away. Kind of like Moses when he went up to the mountain and he was surrounded by the glory of God and he came back down and there's his people worshiping a golden calf. And then the glory just kind of fades. <laughs> and you're like, what on earth is going on? And that's what life can do to us. Is that, you know what, in the end, it can slowly fade away from us. But imagine if it doesn't go away. Imagine that feeling that you have in your chest and then you're around you forever and ever and ever. That's where we're going. And so that's our hope. And that's our joy. And that's our comfort. Knowing that in the end, that is where we're heading. That death is not the end. Life is. And it's life in Jesus. Let us pray. Father, we thank you so much for what you have done through your son, Jesus Christ. We thank you so much for the patriarchs and their families. We thank you that you have continued to deliver them through all the perilousness that comes in life. And it reminds us that you will deliver us as well. And so, Lord, we have nothing to fear because the only one to fear is you. But if you love us, then truly fear should be gone. And so, Lord, we ask that we would know the great love that you have given to us through your son, Jesus Christ. And we ask, Lord, that you would continue to give us courage to proclaim the truth of the gospel to people around us. And that we would desire to know you more, to honor you more, and to continue to give our lives to you. We thank you. In your son's name we pray. Amen. Please rise as we sing our final hymn.